There are millions of people around the world with orphan diseases. Who helps these patients with rare diseases find better treatments and cures? Welcome to this special report on global medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss finding better treatments and cures for orphan diseases is Mr. John Solly, charity manager of Great Britain's Myrovlitis Trust, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to finding treatments and cures for rare disease. Mr. Solly, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for inviting me. So when was the Myrovlitis Trust founded? What does that mean and what are its aims? So the trust was founded in late 2007. So we've been around for about a year in London, in Great Britain. It has two aims, to promote research into rare genetic disorders. That's including but not limited to Berthog-Dubé syndrome, which I guess we'll talk a little bit about later. Um, And then the second aim is to advance education of the public in medical and molecular genetics. And in terms of the name, it means MER-centered, and it's related to our source of funding. So why do you think the Myrovlitis Trust or the philanthropist who put it together, why would they pick orphan diseases? Wouldn't significant funding make a broader impact if you found a better treatment or cures for larger diseases? So I think there's several reasons here. One very important one is the idea of equality of opportunity. To us at the Trust, it's unclear that health should be subject to some kind of rigid utilitarianism, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number. And so maybe health is a special case where, however rare your disease is, you know, you have a chance of of being able to live a healthy life. So here at the Trust, we're motivated by equality of opportunity. We don't really understand why just because your particular rare genetic disorder that you happen to have inherited happens to be very rare, just because that happens, you receive an inferior quality of treatment compared with somebody who has a more common disease. We believe that the same level of treatment, the same range of drugs, and the same quality of drugs should be available to everybody, really, regardless of how rare or how common any genetic mutation that you have might be. And have you looked at the disproportionate funding either in Great Britain or around the world as it affects orphan diseases? And what does that tell us about how governments feel about this? So orphan diseases are a case where the market fails, essentially. There are thousands and thousands of orphan diseases, and many of them have essentially no money being put into them at all. And so the government recognizes this, certainly in the UK, and I believe it's similar in the States as well, and has introduced excellent legislation, the Orphan Drug Act, and equivalent pieces of legislation in different countries. And so they're, they're aware of the problem, and they're trying to do something to tackle it. But even, even that isn't quite enough to encourage drug companies to invest in developing drugs for, for, for what are very often very, very few patients. And is it part of the purpose of the Myrovlitis Trust to engage industry and government in doing more around these kinds of orphan diseases? Is that part of why you exist? Absolutely, yes. So both in terms of our specific disease that we're looking at at the moment, Berthog-Dubé syndrome, and more generally, we're working mainly within the UK at the moment. We're just in the process of setting up some policy work with NowGen, which is an organization, a genetic center in Manchester in, in the north of England. And they're going to hopefully be able to start to develop policy and engage with government to work with this, you know, this very important problem. So you mentioned the trust has a focus on genetics. How did they focus on those kinds of orphan diseases versus orphan disease in general? So the source of the funding has an interest in Berthog-Dubé syndrome, which is a genetic disease. 
And so many of these orphan diseases have a genetic basis. Those were the, the two primary reasons. And it feels that at the moment, with all this new sequencing technology and all this new information that we're finding out every day about genetics and about genes and about what's going on in terms of biology, that this is a real opportunity where we are at the start of the 21st century to be able to make a difference to orphan diseases, approaching them primarily from a genetic point of view. Do you have sister organizations in other countries or even within Great Britain that are also looking at the genetic basis of orphan diseases, or are you sort of one standing out alone right now? So this feels like a situation where there are organizations, particularly in the States, who are ahead of us here in the UK, in Great Britain. So there are several organizations that we've been learning from in the States. In the UK, it's less so, I think. There are some organizations, but the idea of philanthropy, targeted philanthropy in this manner is, I think, less developed than it is over with you in the States. And who have you partnered with so far to move your agenda forward, and how did you select those partners? So the first group is research scientists. That's the biggest thing for us so far at the moment. We've given about more than one and a half million pounds in grants to fund basic research. That's probably, well, it depends on the exchange rate, but maybe two and a half, three million dollars. The first big grant that we gave was to Dr. Eamon Marr, who works at Birmingham in the UK. He's one of the world's leading experts on kidney disease, inherited kidney disease. And then we chose other scientists for their scientific expertise. We only want to work with the best guys, um, and we're lucky that we're able to do that. And we chose people according to where the gaps were in our knowledge of the biology. So that's the first group, the research scientists. And then we're working with a patient organization in the States, the BHD Family Alliance. They work with patients. Together we helped organize the first scientific conference about BHD syndrome. And we've been working with other scientists to develop some kind of consortium in Europe. So those are the partners that we've been working with at the moment. And how many people attended the BHD symposium and what did you manage to accomplish there? So we had about 47, I think, people there. It included all the main guys. A lot of the initial work into BHD has been done at the NIH. So we were very lucky that several people from NIH were able to be there, including Marston Linehan and Laura Schmidt, as well as all the other main guys from around the world, from Europe and from Japan and from everywhere, basically. And it was the first opportunity for some of the, the researchers, it was the first opportunity for them to meet each other. I, it's amazing. Having, having been working on this disease for many, many years and reading each other's papers and so on, some of them you know, had never, <laughs> never been in the same room as each other. So it was very good as a starting point for us to begin to move forward. I, I think it was a focus point. This is where we are. These are the guys working on it. This is what we know. It's like a baseline. We've set the baseline, and, and now it's onwards and upwards. In addition to the researchers, were there also patients and advocates at this meeting? There were some, yes. So Kathy Sherman from the BHD Family Alliance, she was involved in organizing it with us, so she was there. And there were a few other patients as well. It was a scientific meeting. It wasn't aimed particularly at patients. It was aimed at, at scientists and clinicians. We felt that there may be scope to have perhaps a patient meeting next year or, or to keep the two separate. We didn't want it to be kind of okay for everybody. We wanted to focus on one aspect and we decided to focus on the science because that's where the cure is going to come. So tell me what kind of a response you got from Kathy and others around the world when they found out that an organization like yours was going to focus this much effort and funding on this small disease. Everybody's been very positive. Without exception, everybody has been very positive. It's one of the most gratifying things. And, you know, you can be cynical and, and say that some of the research scientists, you know, it's, it's an extra source of funding for them, and I'm sure that's part of it. But, but even so, the patients 
they're obviously very, very pleased. It's, it's a wonderful thing for them. And one of the trust accomplishments was organizing the Myra Vlitis Trust Scientific Thought Leader Workshop. Tell us what that workshop focused on and what did you hope it would accomplish? So that was focusing on renal gene therapy. So this is an area where we were looking at something that's useful for our own disease, but also maybe a little bit more widely applicable. So we invited 15 of the leading renal gene therapists and other gene therapists and other kidney specialists from around the world to our two-day meeting in London in August. We had about 15 guys there. And the idea was to identify the current barriers to progress and how we can overcome them and how we can move forward with renal gene therapy. The first clinical trial was was 14 years ago in, in 1994, and yet there's no approved drug, gene therapy drug, as it were, for renal cell carcinoma, for cancer of the kidney. There have obviously been some barriers and some challenges that people have been working on over the last 14 years. And we feel that there's a lot of very exciting research, particularly in the last couple of years, that can be applied to the kidney in terms of targeting particularly. And so we feel that the time is right, really, for us to bring all that together and have a, little, have a big push with renal gene therapy, which will be useful for us, but also useful for the 12,000 Americans who die every year from renal cell carcinoma, 3,500 Brits who die every year from renal cell carcinoma, so much more widely applicable, not just our, our narrow disease. And is this one of the reasons why working in the orphan disease space makes so much sense that any kind of a breakthrough for Berthog Dubé or any other orphan disease is likely to have wider applicability? I think that's one of the main reasons. Yes. I mean, obviously, some of, the, some of the things you find out are going to be just to do with your gene and just to do with your disease, but a lot of it isn't. And there are some big gaps out there and some big prizes just waiting to be filled, waiting to be gone after. And you talked about kidney cancer. Is that a component of Berthog Dubé? And what are some of the other signs and symptoms of this disease? There are three different symptoms. So the answer to your question is yes. About maybe a quarter or a third of people develop kidney cancer. That's one of the symptoms. One of the others is growth or bumps on the skin, particularly the face and your torso. And then the third one is growth on your lung and a risk of a collapsed lung. So the, the skin bumps, they don't kill you, but they're disfiguring and they, they can cause a lot of emotional distress if you have a lot of them, particularly on your face. And the collapsed lung, typically it doesn't kill you, you know, in the Western world, but again, it can cause problems. And then obviously the, the kidney cancer can be fatal. And are all three of those big areas of the disease, are they related to the same genetic problems or are they separate genetic problems? It's a very good question. They are all related to mutation of the main gene. So they are related, but we don't understand why there is variation in those symptoms, why some guys only get the lung symptoms, some guys only get the kidney symptoms, and why people get more severe phenotype or less severe phenotype. So that's something that we're looking at at the moment. And what resources are you willing to put towards BHD, and what's your goal or your endpoint for this kind of research and treatment? So the resources, we're putting money. That, that's our big thing. We, we work with the best guys that we can get. You know, we make use of the best expertise that, that we can find anywhere in the world, and we provide money to developing therapies and treatments for BHD syndrome. Our endpoint is if you have BHD syndrome, it doesn't matter. Where there are drugs that can take away your skin lesions so you don't have the, the disfigurement and the psychological, you know, the, the emotional distress, where there are drugs that can remove the risk of pneumothorax, 
and where there are drugs or treatments that mean that the kidney cancer is not a problem. We don't, we're not going to cure it, but we can diminish it or we can push it out in the time, you know, in your lifespan that it becomes irrelevant. That's our end point. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. John Sally, charity manager of the UK's Myrovitis Trust, for joining us to discuss the search for better treatments and cures of orphan diseases, especially Bert Hogg Dubé syndrome. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and you've been listening to a special report on global medicine from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at ReachMD.com, which features our entire interview library, available through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. And thank you for listening.